I'll start this episode by saying that no one is perfect. We've all made mistakes. Oftentimes, it's what we do to better ourselves after our mistakes that can define who we are. The difference between us and famous people is that famous people have a harder time hiding their skeletons. Their past transgressions are scrutinized, exposed, judged, and only sometimes forgiven. Or if the person has loyal enough fans, just ignored completely. Some folks can separate the artist from their personal lives. For some, it can be harder to do so. That's the reason why there are always two divided camps when something is revealed about a celebrity. Michael Jackson may have had inappropriate contact with minors, but he made Thriller. There's a pretty good chance Mel Gibson hates Jewish people, but Lethal Weapon, Braveheart, and Mad Max. Robert Wagner probably had something to do with Natalie Wood's drowning, but wasn't he funny in Austin Powers? Even authors can't avoid having their personal lives brought out into the open, and most of them use pseudonyms to help protect their identity. For example, crime author Anne Perry helped her friend murder her mother when she was younger. Children's author Enid Blyton neglected her own children while she wrote. Lord of the Flies author William Golding was an attempted rapist. Sometimes they don't care if you know the darker things they've done or believe in. Orson Scott Card, who wrote Ender's Game, is a homophobe who believes in the gay agenda and compared President Obama to Hitler. Charles Dickens was a horrible husband. H.P. Lovecraft only cared for white people and his works are peppered with racial slurs and stereotypes. Ezra Pound, Virginia Woolf, T.S. Eliot, all anti-Semites. So does respecting and enjoying someone's work despite the knowledge of their checkered history make you a bad person? A hypocrite? Or can that be separate? Those questions have come up a lot in my mind over the past few years due to one beloved children's writer. As I've mentioned, I work in the library of a K-8 STEAM school. A topic that has been brought up a lot lately is Dr. Seuss. There are younger teachers, far more aware of today's issues than I am, teachers who believe that his work should be put aside. Not banned, necessarily, just removed from the spotlight. There are also teachers on the other side of the coin who will always use Seuss's material as a fallback to get their students reading. The National Education Association has long celebrated March's Reading Month, and in particular, Read Across America Day, which is typically celebrated on March 2nd, which also happens to be the birthday of Dr. Seuss. His work with funny words and big, beautiful imagery have, in the past, been used to market Read Across America Day. However, the NEA has separated itself from the Seuss enterprise in recent years. Honestly, it should come as no surprise. Some things don't age as well as others. Seuss Enterprises announced back in 2021 that six of the author's titles would be pulled from publication. The list included his first book, and to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street, as well as If I Ran the Zoo, McElligott's Pool, The Cat's Quizzer, Scrambled Eggs Super, and On Beyond Zebra. But aside from some questionable artwork, if we do a little digging, we find out that Dr. Seuss was not always as lovable as his characters were. With March's reading month approaching, I thought it would be a good time to take a look at some of the lesser known, sometimes darker events in the life of the man who gave us the cat in a hat, the Lorax, one fish, two fish, and green eggs and ham.
Episode 54, The Legacy of Theodore Seuss Geisel. Dr. Seuss was born Theodore Seuss Geisel in Springfield, Massachusetts in 1904. In his youth, he went by Ted. His parents, Theodore and Henrietta, had married three years prior in 1901. Geisel's father, Theodore, worked at the Kalmbach and Geisel breweries. An interesting side note is that his father was an excellent marksman and held the world title for target shooting at 200 yards in 1902. Ted was the second child born to the Geisels. His sister, Margarita, was born in 1902. Her family called her Marnie for short. The two were the best of friends, and Marnie watched over him on the way to and from school. Of the two, Marnie took school much more seriously and excelled at the piano. In 1906, a third child named after Henrietta was born. Unfortunately, she passed away from pneumonia a year and a half later. The death, along with the image of his baby sister's tiny casket, left a mark on him that would last a lifetime. As America entered World War I in 1914, Geisel and his sister became even closer as they battled prejudice against German Americans. The pair were taunted relentlessly in and around school. Geisel belonged to a Boy Scout troop in his youth, Troop 13. Like many other troops at the time, Troop 13 took part in a war bond drive. Thanks to his grandfather, who ran a successful brewery buying $1,000 worth of bonds, Geisel became one of the top-selling scouts in Springfield. He was part of a lucky group of 10 scouts in the area who were selected to receive a medal from President Theodore Roosevelt in May of 1918. Geisel took the stage at Springfield's Municipal Auditorium last in line and awaited his handshake and award. Unfortunately, someone had handed President Roosevelt only nine medals. When he handed out the last medal, he looked at poor Ted Geisel and yelled out, What's this boy doing here? The president didn't want to be embarrassed, so he embarrassed Geisel instead. Some of the president's handlers grabbed the boy and rushed him off the stage. This event manifested itself into a deep fear of appearing before an audience for the rest of his life. At Central High School, Geisel began submitting stories and illustrations to the school's newspaper, the Central Recorder. By the end of those four years, he was voted both class artist and class wit. This newfound confidence prompted Geisel to enroll in Dartmouth College. While at Dartmouth, he joined the Sigma Phi Epsilon fraternity and became a staff writer for the Dartmouth Jack-O-Lantern the university's humor magazine. It wasn't long before he became editor-in-chief. Geisel's college years happened to coincide with the beginning of the Prohibition era. On the 16th of January, 1919, the 18th Amendment was ratified. The country went dry at midnight on January 17, 1920. Despite the new Prohibition laws, Geisel decided to hold a party in his dorm room. He and nine friends were drinking gin until they were caught. Dartmouth's dean, not wanting the story to go public, quietly disciplined him by forcing him to resign from all extracurricular activities, including working on the jack-o'-lantern. In order to continue working on the magazine without the dean knowing, he began signing all of his work under the pen name Seuss, which was his mother's maiden name. Another quick side note, the name Seuss was originally pronounced as Soyce, rhyming with voice. Later in life, he changed it to rhyme with Mother Goose. From Dartmouth, Geisel went to Lincoln College in Oxford, 
where he earned a Doctor of Philosophy title in English Literature. Oxford is also where he met his future wife, Helen Palmer. It was Palmer who encouraged him to give up becoming an English teacher and work on becoming a full-time artist. Before obtaining a degree, Geisel left Oxford and returned to the United States in 1927. He got to work submitting his writings and drawings to anyone that was accepting them at the time. The Saturday Evening Post was the first to accept one of his cartoons, and it appeared in the July 16th issue. He received $25. Ted and Helen moved to New York City, where he took on a job as a writer and illustrator for Judge Magazine. After saving enough money, the couple were married on November 29th of that year. In 1928, Geisel drew a cartoon for Judge Magazine that mentioned a bug spray named Flit. The wife of an advertising executive who had Flit as a client saw the cartoon and urged her husband to sign him. Various ads appeared for Flit, drawn by Geisel for almost 13 years. The Flit ads pushed Geisel into the limelight, and soon his work was appearing regularly in magazines like Life and Vanity Fair. In 1931, Geisel illustrated a book entitled Boners, which was a collection of children's sayings. The book sat on top of the New York Times bestsellers list for weeks and spawned a sequel titled More Boners that came out the same year. The word boner, for those keeping score at home, originally meant blunder and probably came from the word bonehead. So stop giggling. By 1936, the Geisels were living a luxurious life. Geisel was making money from big names like Ford Motor Company and the NBC radio network. Together, the couple had visited 30 countries as they traveled the world. He felt like traveling gave him inspiration, and he used that inspiration to write his first book and to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street. While aboard the SS Kungsholm, he used the thrumming rhythm of the ship's engines to write the words about an actual street in Springfield, Massachusetts. According to Geisel, the book was rejected by over 40 publishers before he happened to bump into an old Dartmouth classmate who had publishing connections. By the time World War II had begun, Geisel went on to write four more books, three of which were children's books. The 500 Hats of Bartholomew Cubbins was released in 1938, followed by The King Stilts in 1939, and 1940's Horton Hatches an Egg. He'd also struck a deal with Random House Publishing that allowed him to write and illustrate one erotic adult book. 10,000 copies of the Seven Lady Godivas were printed in 1939. It was widely panned and only sold a quarter of the printed copies. Geisel is quoted as saying, I attempted to draw the sexiest babes I could, but they came out looking absurd. Geisel felt that it was his greatest failure and a book that nobody bought. It was all full of naked women and I can't draw convincing naked women. I put their knees in the wrong places. He took a break from children's literature during World War II. As the war began, Geisel spent a majority of his time drawing over 400 political cartoons in two years for newspapers like the New York Daily News, Chicago Tribune, and Washington Times-Herald. Most of his material depicted Japanese people with exaggerated offensive features. He took on the Germans as well, but none of it compared to the hatred he felt towards the Japanese. Geisel was a staunch supporter of internment camps for Japanese Americans during World War II. His concern was sabotage. During an interview, he explained his position on the matter. But 
Right now, when the Japs are planting their hatchets in our skulls, it seems like a hell of a time for us to smile and warble, brothers. It is a rather flabby battle cry. If we want to win, we've got to kill Japs. Whether it depresses John Haynes Holmes or not, we can get palsy-walsy afterward with those that are left. Due to his popular, sometimes racist propaganda, Geisel was contracted by the United States government to produce educational cartoons for the troops. He was reportedly given full artistic license. In 1942, Geisel was hired by the Treasury Department to work on posters. The following year, he joined the Army as a captain and was commander of the Animation Department of the 1st Motion Picture Unit of the United States Army Air Forces. There, he wrote films like Your Job in Germany, Our Job in Japan, and the private snafu series of Army training films. As the war ended, Geisel got back to what he did best, cranking out children's books. Between 1947 and 1960, he wrote and released McElligot's Pool, Thidwick the Big-Hearted Moose, Bartholomew and the Ublek, If I Ran the Zoo, Horton Hears a Who, If I Ran the Circus, The Cat in the Hat, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, and Green Eggs and Ham. During that time, Dartmouth awarded Geisel an honorary doctorate of humane letters. He appeared on the television show To Tell the Truth, and he and his wife Helen wrote the documentary Design for Death. The film won the 1947 Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. In the 1960s, Geisel watched his wife Helen suffer through most of a 13-year-long series of illnesses. Helen became partially paralyzed due to Guillain-Barre syndrome, a rare disorder in which your body's immune system attacks your nerves. She also had cancer towards the end of her life. Helen was quite the writer herself. She wrote her own children's books, edited her husband's, and was also the founder and vice president of Beginner Books. The couple had been married for nearly 40 years, when a rumored affair with good friend and neighbor Audrey Stone Demond took place. Reportedly, the affair left Helen feeling sick, sad, and alone. Some believe it may have contributed to her death. On October 23, 1967, the Geisel's housekeeper found Helen's lifeless body with a prescription pill bottle nearby. The bottle originally contained 1,000 capsules. 294 of them were gone. Next to her body was a note left for her husband. Dear Ted, what has happened to us? I don't know. I feel myself in a spiral going down, down, down into a black hole from which there is no escape, no brightness. And loud in my ears from every side I hear failure, failure, failure. I love you so much. I'm too old and enmeshed in everything you do and are that I cannot conceive of life without you. My going will leave quite a rumor but you can say I was overworked and overwrought. Your reputation with your friends and fans will not be harmed. Sometimes, think of the fun we had all through the years. Less than a year after Helen's suicide, Geisel went on to marry Audrey DeMond. Both were married at the time of their initial affair. DeMond quickly divorced her husband and sent her daughters to boarding school. The couple remained together for the next 23 years until Geisel passed away in 1991 from cancer. According to Time magazine, Geisel considered his greatest achievement to be killing off the Dick and Jane books, which he said weren't challenging enough for children and were boring. Dr. Seuss's books became the new standard in children's publishing, expanding the imagination through brilliant illustration, social issues, and clever rhymes and vocabulary. 
As Geisel passed away, he left Audrey in charge of everything. According to the New York Times, she founded Dr. Seuss Enterprises in 1993. The mission of the Enterprise was to protect the integrity of the Dr. Seuss books while expanding beyond books into ancillary areas. It wouldn't be long before film adaptations began popping up all over. Animated adaptations of Horton Hears a Who and The Lorax were released along with the 2000 live-action film Dr. Seuss' How the Grinch Stole Christmas, starring Jim Carrey. That same year, Seussical opened up on Broadway and quickly tanked. In 2003, she was met with another failure as Universal Pictures released the live-action Cat in the Hat movie, starring Mike Myers. Audrey was not shy about her hatred of the film and the choice to cast Mike Myers. While running Dr. Seuss Enterprises, Audrey did support dozens of charities and donated $20 million and a wealth of Dr. Seuss's drawings and manuscripts to the University of California, San Diego. She passed away on December 19, 2018, at the age of 97. While Dr. Seuss Enterprises runs as a for-profit venture, the entirety of their profits are donated to a number of charitable organizations. Two years ago, on Theodore Geisel's birthday, Dr. Seuss Enterprises released a statement. Today, on Dr. Seuss's birthday, Dr. Seuss Enterprises celebrates reading and also our mission of supporting all children and families with messages of hope, inspiration, inclusion, and friendship. We are committed to action. To that end, Dr. Seuss Enterprises, working with a panel of experts, including educators, reviewed our catalog of titles and made the decision last year to cease publication and licensing of the following titles. And to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street, If I Ran the Zoo, McGilligott's Pool, On Beyond Zebra, Scrambled Egg Super, and The Cat's Quizzer. These books portray people in ways that are hurtful and wrong. Ceasing sales of these books is only part of our commitment and our broader plan to ensure Dr. Seuss's catalog represents and supports all communities and families. In the year leading up to that letter, there was a big uproar from people on all sides of the issue. As was the case even at the school I work at, some people thought it was time to move away from Dr. Seuss. Some people let his thoughts and words from a bygone era slide. Some were instantly offended. The big concern was censorship. I myself was never asked to remove any books from the library, and the idea of banning books or the author himself was never on the table. 1937's And to Think That I Saw It on Mulberry Street was pulled due to its illustrations of an Asian person wearing a conical hat while eating from a bowl with chopsticks. The man in question is a vibrant yellow color, and the words below him say, A Chinaman Who Eats With Sticks. 1950s If I Ran the Zoo ceased publication due to the illustrations of barefoot African men wearing grass skirts, as well as Asian characters in conical hats and carrying white men on their heads. One line from that book goes, I'll hunt in the mountains of Zamba Matant, with helpers who all wear their eyes at a slant. The other four were pulled due to their characterization of Eskimos, Middle Easterners, and people of Japanese descent. As Geisel entered into the last few years of his life, he repeatedly spoke out against racism. Family members have come out in his defense, saying things like, there wasn't a racist bone in that man's body. His stepdaughter is quoted as saying that he was a sensitive, intelligent, caring man who was simply a product of his times. On numerous occasions, he would go back and revise his wording and illustrations, 
For example, before it was pulled completely, the line in Mulberry Street was changed from Chinaman to Chinese man, and his yellow skin was made white. So I leave it up to you, dear listeners. What are your thoughts? What were your thoughts on the subject before you heard this podcast episode? Did any of this change those thoughts? Like the one uncle everyone has that is still stuck on terms and norms that are from decades ago, do we forgive and forget? People from the era that used words like oriental or colored to describe a person of a different race are dying out. Should the entertainment from that time die out also? Or are we able to look past some of the bad stuff and recognize a man who single-handedly changed children's literature? A man who never wanted kids of his own, but loved to entertain yours. As I sit in the library I work at, I look at the Dr. Seuss section. I don't keep it prominently displayed or anything, but I also don't hide it. The kids that like Dr. Seuss and being able to read know right where his books are. Thank you to all the patrons who are supporting the show on Patreon. I couldn't do this without you guys. Thank you to Dave, David, Jim, Marie, Laura, Vicky, and Chris for being a part of the team. If you'd like to become a patron of this podcast, please visit patreon.com slash curator135. There are three tiers of support, or you can name your own donation. Please like, follow, and subscribe to Curator135 on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. And don't forget about all the great merchandise available at the shop. I'll have some new designs coming soon. If you enjoyed this or any of my other podcast episodes, don't forget to leave a five-star review. As always, thank you for listening. And remember, be good to one another and be creative. The world needs you. One, four, three. On a tree with a bee in the sea. Wee oui, wee. Oui.